Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. The Challenge of Filling Your Blank Page or Keeping It Empty by Ian Hamlin The famed anxiety-inducing nemesis of any writer or creative, the ever-daunting blank page. Well, I've bought myself a new notebook, so I have a literal open page in front of me, but also something more. I'm starting a three-month sabbatical from my role as a Baptist minister, stepping down from my day-to-day responsibilities of work, but also, to a degree, away from the basic structures that define my life, the people, purpose and rhythm of not only what I do, but who I am. It's a weird sort of job like that. What would you do with three months off from work, family commitments, whatever it is that defines your day-to-day ordinarily? Well, buy a notebook, obviously. But after that, I'm conscious, of course, that this is a rare privilege, a consequence, I guess, of the strange link between a professionalised clergy and academia from days past, but also a recognition of the all-encompassing nature of the role. Maybe, because of that, it's also a real challenge, the true blank page. The first instinct, I guess, is to take a break, to stop, to breathe. That's undeniably good. But for how long? Is that it? At what point does stopping and breathing become lazy indulgence? I've been reading quite a lot lately, perhaps subconsciously preparing for these months, about taking time out, resting, slowing down. Often these thoughts have been expressed as an exploration of the notion of Sabbath, that Judeo-Christian notion of keeping a period of time, a day a week, special, sacred even. This, of course, is the root from which sabbaticals have grown. Not so much about the ivory towers and quadrangles after all, but more the Hebrew prophets and itinerant Jewish preachers of ancient days, seeking to find the rhythms of a fulfilled life. There's John Mark Comer's ubiquitous The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, which seems to have touched a cultural nerve, but also Ruth Haley Barton's Invitation to Solitude and Silence. Then, out of the blue, I was invited to reflect again on Walter Brueggemann's sense of Sabbath as the refusal to let one's life be defined by production and consumption and the endless pursuit of private well-being. He also observed that recognising just how we, like multiple generations before us, each in their own way, are utterly enmeshed in systems and structures designed not so much for our well-being, but rather the benefit of others. The departure into restfulness is both urgent and difficult, for our motors are set to run at brick-making speed. A reference to one of those earlier structures, highlighted in the Bible, where Egypt's pharaoh had Hebrew slaves building ever larger structures to assuage their growing thoughts of freedom. Most recently of all, 
I've been struck by following Pete Grieg's pilgrimage walk from Iona to Lindisfarne, and the passing comment that the original Celtic monks, in making the same journey, eschewed the offer of horses to ride, preferring to walk, fearing that the increased pace of travel on a horse might cause them to miss something. I'm sure I've missed lots. I'm convinced I'm caught up in a whole range of hectic, consumerist structures, and I'm often tired. So rest gets a big tick from me. At least I think it does. But barely do I sit down, and I'm feeling restless again. How long can or should I keep this up? There are so many things to do, opportunities to explore, people to please... I need to justify this privilege of time and space. And then there's that ever-present sense within me, my natural instinct, if you will, true, I'm sure, of many, that I like the idea of contemplation, the need for it even, but actually I'm more driven by activism, by getting stuff done. The focal point of my whole break, planned for quite a while now, is a trip to the USA to follow the life of one of my spiritual heroes, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Now there's an activist, if ever there was one. His speaking, his marching, his campaigning and protesting, even his sitting, was driven with a passion and an urgency that was infectious and effective. His consistent rage against injustice has been a call to arms both to his immediate contemporaries and generations subsequently to get up, go out and do. Ultimately, of course, he poured out his whole life in the cause. It's taken me an age to read a few preparatory biographies of him, stimulated as I am from every page challenged to act, to never let injustice rule while I have voice and agency. So there we have it, another paradox. In the complicated business of being the person I'm meant to be, realising the best of God's investment in me, the conflict between rest and exploration, being and doing, contemplation and activism. I imagine we are all drawn to a certain place on that spectrum. Blank pages, freed up days and diaries, only serve to underline what we already are. But, I suspect, we can all also hear the call to either end of the range, to be stirred to action by the things that break the heart of God, and to lay down our burdens, take upon ourselves the easier yoke, and live increasingly in the unforced rhythms of grace. Maybe to start with, at least, listening to that call, recognising the tension, while not allowing it to create pressure in us, is enough. Hearing, praying, scribbling my first semi-coherent thoughts on that vast, empty page. Making myself another coffee and wondering what I might do next. The Old Oak by Krish Kandaya in the dusty back room at the rather run-down old oak pub in County Durham, North East England, there is a faded black and white photo. 
It shows the very same room, packed full of hungry families sharing a community meal together. Below it is written a sign, When you eat together, you stick together. Pub landlord Tommy Joe Ballantyne explained to a young Syrian refugee photographer, Yara, that the picture was taken by his uncle during the miners' strike when the community made it a priority to feed each other's children no matter what. This is the pivotal scene in Ken Loach's latest and some suggest final film, The Old Oak. The multi-award winning director has produced another masterful piece of cinema which, although set in 2016, provides vivid social commentary on our current cost of living crisis and our struggling immigration and asylum system. By setting the film in an old colliery town facing its own challenges with social deprivation, Lee allows those communities who feel left behind by the rest of the country to raise legitimate concerns about immigration. The film powerfully portrays local people expressing frustration at being used as a dumping ground by government for ex-prisoners, while also feeling trapped by unemployment, falling house prices and rising costs. Into this community then arrive refugees fleeing the brutal war in Syria. Yara arrives, camera in hand, snapping photographs of her family's arrival on a bus. They are met with hostility from the beginning. We see the conflict through the lens of Yara's camera, black and white photographs that foreshadow the photos of the minor struggles she will later discover on the wall of the pub's back room. We see another photo, the one Yara's mother displays pride of place in the lounge, of Yara's father, who was lost in the brutal Syrian prison system. These photographs provide beautiful symbolism throughout the movie, signalling the themes of solidarity and resistance. We see in the film the power of the camera to change the way that people see their world and view others in the face of hatred. We see the power of food to unite divided communities. We see the power of hospitality in the face of hostility. We see families from both communities caught in impossible situations. What Lee does so brilliantly in the rich dialogue, which sounds less like a script, more like a fly-on-the-wall documentary, is allow the strongest arguments against refugee and asylum to be raised. Yet, ultimately, this dialogue opens the eyes of the two communities and allows them to discover that they have so much more in common than they might have imagined. I have witnessed this sort of eye-opening connection myself. I have seen Afghans resettled to hotels, find a welcome into a village community through integrated cricket matches. I have seen women with no common language forge friendships over a picnic. I have seen children change from sullen and suspicious to animated and inseparable in minutes with the help of an Xbox. I've seen the beer and pub industry offer support and help to Ukrainians. I've seen churches open their doors and their hearts to Muslims from Kosovo and Syria. The film is not just depicting some sort of Hollywood romantic utopia. It is powerfully celebrating what is happening in communities all around the UK. The dusty back pub room is transformed 
to the bustling hub of community life once again, as families from different worlds befriend and support each other over shared meals and recognition of their common mortality and humanity. It turned out both communities had experienced displacement. The mining community had once lost their jobs, their financial stability and their heritage. The refugee community had lost their homes, their country and their heritage. In a beautiful moment of reconciliation in the film, the Syrian families present their new neighbours with a banner made in the style of the traditional mining banners used on gala days, the ones that took pride of place on marches just behind a brass band. The banner is inscribed in both English and Arabic with the words that have drawn the communities together, strength, solidarity, resistance. I believe the film, like the banner, offers a rallying cry to those who see it. It helps us understand two of the most marginalised communities in Britain at the moment, the impoverished towns of the north and the refugees and asylum seekers. It challenges us to find ways to come together with empathy and hospitality. It suggests that there are mutually beneficial consequences when we learn not only to live together, but to share food and lives together. As a Christian, I am reminded that this is exactly what Jesus did. Through his life and his words, Jesus showed that eating together with the marginalised wrong sorts of people was a powerful way to change expectations, to model different values, to fight for peace, and to love and serve God. Confessions of an Atheist Philosopher, Part 6, Making the Leap, by Stephanie Ruper. Faith is irrational. Faith is against evidence. Faith is a threat to progress. Faith will bring about the downfall of civilization. I used to think this, and I wasn't alone. In 2004, Sam Harris wrote that faith allows otherwise normal human beings to reap the fruits of madness and consider them holy. This quote appears in his book, The End of Faith, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for 33 weeks. Fellow pop atheist A.C. Grayling says that faith directly controverts canons of intellectual integrity. Faith is not a respectable or admirable thing. Having been so long paraded as a virtue and worthy of respect, the truth is otherwise. It is irresponsible, lazy and too often dangerous. When I was about 20, I realised that I had dismissed faith as irrational without ever engaging it. I had prided myself on open-mindedness, while at the same time refusing to hear what people of faith had to say. This struck me as deeply hypocritical, so I went to seminary. I asked religious people about faith. I studied what theologians and philosophers said about it. I did this for about 12 years. In this time, I confirmed my earlier belief that there are extreme examples of irrationality and closed-mindedness in religion. Of course there are. But there are extreme examples of irrationality and closed-mindedness in secularism too. The danger isn't faith. The danger is what I used to do, 
oversimplifying and reducing one another to easy targets so we can tear each other down. Faith, I now know, looks very different to many people. Some forms of it are healthier than others. Some are toxic. But after more than 12 years of study, I've come to believe a specific way of defining or practising faith is not just acceptable for our society, but crucial. I consider it the answer to many of our shared needs, especially for more love, generosity, justice, resilience, progress and hope. It's this. A choice. Faith is a choice. Our society is unique among all societies that have ever existed. It is the first society where we must choose to trust and believe just a little bit or to distrust and believe nothing at all. This is what don't believe looks like. Distrust. Stick to the bare facts of physical reality and science. Live as though there is no possibility of any dimensions existing beyond material reality as we understand it today. There is no creator, no ultimate love, no ultimate home. There is only the here and now. When you die, nothing happens. I subscribed to this option for 30 years because I thought it necessary to be loyal to the truth. I thought that being a good person meant resisting the temptations of faith. I felt proud of myself for bravely accepting the emptiness of the world. But it was poor consolation. Another reason I followed this option was because I, like most people in our culture, had a deeply rooted habit of suspicion and distrust. Authorities of all kinds have so routinely deceived and disappointed us that most of us live habitually expecting to be attacked, hurt, let down, duped, used, manipulated and misled. We must always expect there's a trick behind any promise. Every offering has a catch. We subconsciously live by the slogan, it's too good to be true. This predisposes us to experiencing a specific kind of harm. When we anticipate being hurt, we often hurt ourselves first so that we get to be in control of the pain. For the first 30 years of my spiritual journey, part of my resistance to God was that I was so afraid of finding out he didn't exist. I never let myself take seriously the possibility that he might. Here's what believe looks like. Trust. Take a good look at your options and say yes the better one, the one rich in possibility and hope and light. Embrace the possibility that there are dimensions of reality beyond our imagining that we cannot see or touch. Embrace the possibility that your story may be a part of some larger story. Embrace the possibility that what you do matters ultimately and is a part of the great unfolding of a narrative beyond your comprehension. Do this with lightness. Have a bold vision, but let a part of that boldness be its ability to change and grow. Trust the community of spiritual seekers all around the world. Hold your own opinions as hypotheses and seek to refine them in community with others as different from you as possible. 
Open yourself to the possibility that you might be able to experience the love of God and walk into greater peace, joy, resilience and generosity than previously. Harris and Grayling say faith is belief against evidence. However, faith can be deeply evidentiary. Done right, faith never contradicts evidence or quality reasoning. Indeed, to me, faith means being loyal to every scrap of evidence, including any that God may provide for us, and constantly revising my views of everything. There are two kinds of evidence for transcendent beliefs. Intellectual evidence, which includes historical, archaeological and philosophical reasons to believe or not to believe. And experiential evidence, which comes from believing in God and seeing what happens. For each of us, experiential evidence is personal. But we can and should always talk about our experiences with others. We should get feedback, compare and learn from one another. I consider my experiences to be data points for God, but I'm open to being incorrect. Faith of the sort I'm advocating doesn't mean putting your head in the sand. It means walking simultaneously with trust and with your eyes open wide. It means embracing your own limitations and learning to delight in being proved wrong or revising your perspective. Many people come to faith in God through a major religious experience. They have a sudden shift. They go from sceptic to believer with a capital B, seemingly overnight. That's not how it's worked for me. I decided to see if I could believe. When I first set out to cultivate faith, I didn't believe anything at all. Why did I do it? I had one very specific reason. It would make the world a better place. I already knew that belief in God was reasonable and that God might exist. I already knew that I could get evidence for God if I dared to believe a little bit first. But what convinced me to finally try believing was an argument William James makes in his essay, Is Life Worth Living? He says... If there is something you can believe in that is reasonable and that will make you either a happier or a better person or both, then you are not just licensed, but obliged to believe it. Not just licensed, but obliged. Believing in God was not just reasonable, but would also make me more of all the things I always wanted to be. More joyful, more peaceful, more generous more resilient. Thus, I was facing a dual realisation. One, God might be real. And two, trying to see if I could believe, that is, intentionally opening myself to God's potential presence in my life, would be an act of both, of exploring truth as well as making me a better person. Put like this, the next step for me was obvious. Do it. Choose faith. Choose trust. Take a chance on God and see what happens. That was 11 months ago now. 
And I can honestly say it was the best thing I've ever done. My belief is far from certain, but it doesn't have to be. Indeed, in some ways it shouldn't be. I just kept saying yes to trust. And my heart is lighter and more free than I ever imagined possible. The secular poet Mary Oliver once famously asked us, What will you do with your one wild, precious life? What will I do? What will you do? If faith means taking a chance on God and seeing what happens, and in doing so, stepping into lives of greater peace, joy, resilience and generosity together, well, what are any of us waiting for? Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.